clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Ots Tyrion in the year of hopefully our Lord, uh, 2021. Uh, welcome to the other side of an insurrection. It is I, your co-host, Jordan Cruciola, with... Hi, Jordan. I'm Sam Weinman, your co-host as well. And we are joined, we are joined by a treasured friend today. Treasured friend, would you care to introduce yourself to the masses who are listening? Hi, I'm April Wolf. Yeah, screenwriter, filmmaker... Woo! Um, April, what have you brought to our doorstep today? Well, I mean, let's let's pull the ribbon. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's undo the bow and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know, crinkle crinkle, open this beautiful gift I've mm -hmm. brought to you. Uh, it is 2009's Drag Me to Hell from Sam yes. Raimi. Yeah. I I'm really I'm multiple reasons I'm I'm really pleased about this one because I was one of those people who didn't get it at first and then upon viewings later on was like oh I just I guess I wasn't just ready for what I was watching but now I'm appreciating it and I'm really enjoying it and now I understand that it's actually just great and it's also just tonally just different from what else we've talked about like you yeah. know we're we're a, we're a haven of trash here on Odds Tyrion this is just not a trash movie this is a really good movie well can I tell you why I think you don't get it um, or yes, you didn't please, get it? Please, I would um, love to. Because uh, it is it is a movie that was written bef long before and concept concepted long before its release in 2009. So I think it's oh. an out of its time, like era less. Um, yeah, uh, I think film. you're absolutely right. No, that's that is that, that is sense. so much of because it no matter what it does feel so Sam Raimi. Like you watch the I was having fun watching it last night feeling the things that reminded me of like oh yeah that's how you see that you even see the flourishes of in the e remake of evil dead the way fede alvarez worked in aspects of sam raimi into that mm -hmm. it's like oh yeah this is that sam raimi look and feel but it does feel so a apart from the time that it arrived in like it just it it like horror of the 2000s did not look that way it almost feels quaint and like charming by comparison to, yeah. to 2000s horror and yeah. it was just, I guess my brain was just not calibrated at the time to receive it. Because I, I was like, oh, this is so... And I wasn't, like, a bitchy, judgy person about movies even then. Like, I've always liked, you know, things that most people don't. But it was like, oh, this is kind of, like, hokey in a way that I'm not enjoying. And then I later just came to realize upon future viewings, I was like, oh, no, 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 I was wrong and dumb. And this is doing exactly... The tone that this is striking, the tones that this is weaving, it's doing so successfully. Yeah. This is so good. But that's, I mean... Reason. So, sorry, I was just, I was going to say, I think there's just like, there's an epidemic of us not being able to see outside of our era when we're mm -hmm. watching movies. Like we mm -hmm. don't know how to relearn the language of something. It's something that I was thinking about when I was watching that movie last Christmas on, because um, it came on HBO with a right. uh, romantic comedy. I love last and Christmas. It's a, it's sorry. a fantastic <laughs> film, but I think, no, I think Sam, you're right because it it's a great film. It's people, just that it doesn't belong. Like it, it didn't, it didn't belong in 2019. No. It, it belonged belong. in like 1998, yes. and you know, like if I were if I were like revisiting this as like a classic, you know, as the way that I tried to watch it, where I was just like, okay, well, let me see if I can kind of change my lens for, for right, watching this. Right, right. I was like, this is a really fantastic film that I would have probably put on pretty easily, you know, mm -hmm. back in the the early 2000s or the 90s. Mm -hmm. I just I, when it comes to 
uh, Drag Me to Hell, when I first saw it, I, I remember really enjoying it and being like, oh, this is scary and it's great. And I, I had a good time. Never watched it again. Like, it was just not something that I picked up or I don't know if it just didn't. I, I remember seeing the ending and being like, oh, that's a bummer. I wonder if there's like an alternate ending on the DVD because I was that bitch. <laughs> I mean, like, and, and now watching it as a grown up, I'm, I'm like, holy shit. How did yeah. I miss what this movie was about? Mm-hmm. Same. Completely the same. And I feel like that is, I feel like I'm generally so good. I, I let myself down uh, in addition to the movie in in not like greeting it with an open mind the first time. Because I feel like I, 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 I just recently watched and thoroughly enjoyed the movie Greenland. And was was talking about it on Twitter, and someone responded to me and was like, "Yeah, I really liked that movie. I was surprised. I liked it. A, I, 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 it surprised me with how like much I enjoyed it. And I, I try to never be, I try to approach movies in such a way that I'll never be surprised by how much I enjoy it because I don't want yeah. to go into something assuming there is a cap on how much I could enjoy it, regardless of what kind of movie that is or who made it, unless it's like some shit heel like Brett Ratner, then fuck that movie forever. <laughs> but like." Like, I don't, I, I want to go into every movie with, it could have a ceiling of tens. Every movie could be, so just, like, bring it on and just wash over me. And in this case, I, I allowed for there to be a cap on how much I could enjoy a kind of movie. And then that, that biased me in icky ways going in. And like you said, I think in the way that it feels out of time, it then becomes timeless. Because it isn't anchored yeah. in having arrived in 2009. And do you know when it had been sort of conceived of initially by Raimi? I think it was pre the Spider-Man movies, actually. Okay, okay. Um, and he had actually, I think that he had offered it, because he was busy with Spider-Man, so he had offered it to Edgar Wright, and then Edgar Wright turned it down. Mm. Um, and then eventually, I think that the project just still kind of stuck with Raimi, and he ended up doing it after the Spider-Man movies. But this is certainly something that was concepted before those movies, and the whole world really changed in that time yeah. which is just like so it's like it's a pre 9-11 movie that was made at post 9-11 and it, I, I just find that wow. fascinating of just like the kinds of tastes and appetites that we mm -hmm. have no you're absolutely because that is i mean as of something we've we've touched on in this and something i it is one of the most like sort of fascinating um sort of cultural time capsules is specifically the the, the split between pre and post 9-11 horror and mm -hmm. how that's why the scope of this podcast is that mid-90s scream um, catalyst until, like, you know, around, like, a 2013 era with, like, a Texas Chainsaw 3D, as is our oft-invoked yeah. sort of end bookend for it. Because there is that same emphasis on the ensemble cast. There, the tropes of those late 90s popcorn dead teenager movies do carry on through the 2000s, but the spirit of them the soul of them gets so much darker in yeah. the post 9-11 context <laughs> that it, it, it takes those things and then just and then just starts torturing them so like well, though it's not like it ditched the elements entirely in favor of something new in post 9-11 it was just like you know what these things have been working and we love franchising and we love sexy casts and we love popcorn horror and we're gonna really hit the gas on that remake machine mm -hmm. but it just made everything dirty and upsetting and Michael Bay colored and so to see something like this that does feel like charming in its way that it it, it is out of just a quaint with, gypsy curse <laughs> just a quaint little gypsy curse that at the same time too does feel more in line with the horror that we would watch now in 2020 than it does what we'd see in 2009 it is somehow it arrived later than when it was come up with and then it arrived too early 
for it to have been, I think, properly appreciated as a as a broader success. Yeah, I think also it's what what we see with post nine eleven horror is we swapped out gross out stuff like we swapped out gross shit for blood, right? Mm-hmm. And the most blood we see in Drag Me for Hell is the fantastic nose blood scene. Like it's it's taking something that we're used to seeing. Like we're used to seeing a lot of blood, but in a different context. Yes. And it's taking it and making it comical and disgusting yeah. instead of um scary because of violence. Yeah. yeah. And it feels less like it feels less like parading the abject in front of you to make you upset than it's just like, LOL guys, look at this fucking nosebleed bit. <laughs> like if I may set the stage for 2009, because I think this is, I, yes. it's, it's really, for me, I think part of the reason, I can't speak for everybody, but why I received it the way it did mm-hmm. is because of Miley Cyrus and the EP she did with Walmart. That would but, be, that would make sense for you. I, I see Allow this. me to, yeah, to explain. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like, like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two, 2009 was a time when I, I think we're transitioning into, like, we, we obviously are about to see the greatness that we see with, like, Jennifer's body. And kind of the shift out of the that aughts, that 9-11 era kind mm-hmm. of thing. But we've yeah. got Grinder comes out in 2009. So gay culture is kind of like, uh, it's it's more prevalent and accessible. It's online. It it's, is yeah, we don't, online. we don't have to just meet on Craigslist. I mean, mm-hmm. some of us still did. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, April, in the month of April. Yes. Has, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was so pointed. I thought you were specifically addressing. I was like, what did I do? So, yeah, when we're thinking about like, the musical landscape. Uh, we have the Hannah Montana movie. Uh, okay. The Climb is the lead single off of it. And so when we're thinking about like pop culture and and what is being sold in a mass way, mm. we've got uh, Miley Cyrus in a blonde wig. That's, and so if that's, that's when the Hannah Montana movie is coming out, that is when the Disney, the sort of Disney, 21st century Disney factory is sort of at its zenith. Things like Sunny yes. the Chance, things like Hannah Montana, the Jonas Brothers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because, and, and it all comes down to this one interview for me that Miley Cyrus posted on her website. But it's because, okay, so Party in the USA comes out in the summer of, of 2009. Mm. Yeah. And it is not supposed to be a hit. Uh, in right. fact, Miley Cyrus. I played that for my husband for the first time actually the other night when we were drunk, and response? I was just like, "No, you don't know this song." And I was like, "You've got to hear this song. You've got to hear this. Like this is propaganda. Like it's amazing." Yes. yes. Miley Cyrus puts out an EP at Walmart with six songs, right? And and to promote her uh, Walmart clothing brand. She doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Miley Cyrus has been a co-writer in every single one of her songs until this EP. This EP is six songs that she had nothing to do with, right? And so Party in the USA could not be further from how she aligns herself. Right, the famously, like, I don't even know what Britney song would have been on She says, I don't don't listen to pop music. Yeah, Yeah, she'd never heard a Jay-Z song. Yeah. And she says this in the interview and puts the interview on her website, right? Like, she wants to let people know, like, <laughs> and she even says, so she says out loud, like, or in the interview, she even says, she's like, well, I didn't think it was going to be a hit. <laughs> like, yeah. she didn't expect anybody to listen to this EP. Mm-hmm. This EP was a Walmart exclusive that goes on to become, <laughs> uh, like, it just, uh, it, they had to sell it everywhere. Exclusive. I did not know. <laughs> Walmart exclusive. Nobody, Party in the USA was a Walmart exclusive. <clears throat> and that now, is also a, a testament to 2009. Walmart exclusives. Right. And as of 2020, it is now one of the 44 songs that have been, uh, that have gone diamond. Right. So like it is a historic (laughs) song. So 
thinking about things I, in terms of the way that we consume them. And your husband Sorry. just got to it. He missed this diamond <laughs> like, hit. What is this? Eleven years. Okay, and also just just like side note, odds, odds, odds. But like <laughs> track number one on this Walmart EP is this song called "Kicking and Screaming," which was originally recorded by Ashley Simpson as an international bonus track single on her I Am Me album. So we're getting only four years after we have Miley Cyrus covering seven layers an of the Ashley 2000s. Simpson song for a Walmart exclusive EP that goes on to become like the biggest song of its time. I mean, I'm just saying, listen. <laughs> And uh, okay. so this sets the stage for the 2009 for you. I want to throw that out there because what we're looking at is kind of the end of these big machines. Yeah. I mean, not the end, right? Because these big machines live on and they just get bigger and then they become conglomerates. But, this is, but I mean, what I mean is the monoculture. Are, the monoliths yeah. are, are, are being minimized as the monoculture is, yes. is yes. winnowing away. Yes. We're finally seeing, because of social media, the very first insight into what an artist feels versus what an artist is being marketed as. So an artist like Miley Cyrus prior to, prior to 2009 would not have a venue to speak what she's saying. We saw that with Britney Spears in 2007 and what was happening with her not being able to access her own voice, right? Mm -hmm. And we're getting the uh, paparazzi culture. Mm -hmm. And we have talked about this in a lot of episodes. And so that's why I want to point to this very specific moment, Miley Cyrus putting this on her own website mm -hmm. while, she's, while they're marketing this song, which becomes this huge thing. And she's saying, hey, this isn't me. Mm -hmm. And so it's essentially drag. So pop culture becomes, in this moment, it's like, oh, it's all drag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, that's what, that's what, I mean, that's the Hannah, that's the Hannah Miley divide. So when I saw Drag Me to Hell, I'm looking at a time when these big budget, like these huge films are just fluff, right? They're just taking something and making it bigger. It's bombastic. It's, it's just, yeah. I, and I'm showing up for this popcorn film. And when I saw Drag Me to Hell, I just mistakenly assumed there was nothing underneath it. And so I was like, oh, it's just gross out on gross out on gross out. It, it's taking an older, tr like, it, it, it's harkening back to a time when we had this gross out horror. But it's just hitting the gas on it for the purpose of excess, which was so definitive of its time. And I think, too, like, it would, it went, the set pieces, I, I, the set pieces in this movie are so good. Like the effects moments are so good, but not in the way that we had been sort of conditioned to expect them at the time. Whereas I watch this now and the, like I, I posted something about it on Twitter and somebody responded. They're like, what are the best, like what are the best things of all time? Who has an anvil hanging in their garage and or shed? <laughs> Straight up Looney Tunes. Who has that? Nobody. Who cares? And that's exactly like, and that the anvil nope. drop happens after she has punched Allison Lohman fully through her mouth to the point where she's elbow deep in Allison Lohman's mouth. Yeah. Pulls that out and then gets crushed by a fucking Looney Tunes anvil. We were not having that kind of fun in 2009. No, we, didn't, we didn't want, it was almost like we were like fun. And actually, I think still feel that way today i uh, feel yes. i feel that we've abandoned fun mm -hmm. and, and we're just like this is not like a serious movie this is mm -hmm. you know like we we are have been conditioned to expect a lot of really dumb shit in movies that is supposed <laughs> yeah. to be serious yes. but like fun for some reason is like passe and like mm -hmm. i don't know give me fun that's kind of one of the reasons why i like that so i think it's a tradition that's carried on that i'm hoping that gets reversed but i think that the effects in drag me to hell are just like obviously this is like a technician who's like honed how to do 
fucking wild effects Amazing, over so many yeah. years. And he's working with the same guy that he was working with for Army of Darkness, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which obviously, like, we still hold up as kind of like the standard bear of like all these amazing things. Oh, this is it's Bruce Jones. Bruce Jones. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I think he's the effects guy. He and they did so much cool stuff to to make this happen of just like not relying. I mean, this is a, like Sam Raimi had all of these effects available to him when he was making Spider-Man. And so mm-hmm. he was like his like vocabulary of effects expanded because he had all the CGI that was available to him that maybe wasn't before. And got the and, level of studio resources available to him. Yeah. And so like, this is one of those like great times of like 2009 where people expected everything to be CGI. And then he mm-hmm. was saying like, how about a combo? Like he was one of, I think he's like, for me, one of the first people who really understands how to um, combine, like, um, you know, puppetry and practical effects with mm. the enhancement of CGI in a way that is so fun and so artistic. And and he's, I just, I appreciate that. And I, I think I still today believe that those are the kinds of effects. Like, it doesn't always have to be all practical, but mm-hmm. I just love the enhancement of those things. And and it's just, it's nice that he looked at it and as not as a replacement, but as as the supplement. Well, and what I, I think I really like about the spirit of this movie, um, you have, I guess, a, a general outline of what's going on is that a, a lovely young woman who works as a, a bank loan officer uh, encounters in her in her desire to level up at work and become the assistant branch manager, she uh, decides to sort of like make a show of force for her boss. Yes. And she's going to make an example out of an old woman who comes in and needs an extension on the loan to keep her home. She's already had two. And Allison's character would typically, Chris, would typically be inclined to give her that next extension because she's like a kind-hearted person, but her bank manager wants her to be more of a hard ass and not give people money. Well, apparently we've already granted her two extensions. And you know, on this type of foreclosure, we seized the trapped equity and the bank makes a sizable amount in fees. We would have to throw her out of her house. It's a tough decision. Your call. So Chris is like, sorry ma'am, the bank can't give you another extension. And it turns out that woman is a mystically inclined Romani individual who casts a gypsy curse upon her. Which is just like, I mean, it's it's funny because like gypsy curse is just like we shouldn't even <laughs> saying gypsy at this point. Like, yeah, it's, right. you know what I mean. Like, right. And so she, uh, she has in a series of distressing encounters with this woman first in the bank and then in the parking garage in her car, and over the course of that, Mrs. Ganish curses Chris. And she learns over the course of the movie, as the escalating terrors start mounting up, that she has been uh, cursed by the, what is it, the the, la- the Lamia? The Lamia yeah. demon? Yeah, that's it. As Urdu Sion Bed. is going to surface in three days uh, and take her soul and pull it down to hell where she will be gnashing teeth and rending garments for all eternity in the burning fires of of the of of hell and so what what I was going to say is is what this movie charm how this movie charms me so much is 
I, I, I love every once in a while when I get a horror movie that makes me feel really safe. Where I don't feel like I have to worry about sexual violence. Or I don't feel like I have to worry about, like, gross misogyny or objectification. It's just kind of like a quaint little story that I can lose myself in and have fun. Alison Lohman. You know, come back anytime, Alison Lohman. We would love to see you again. Um, Alison Lohman gets put through so much shit in this movie. She gets physically worked over she gets beat to hell she gets so many things sprayed and vomited onto her and at no point do i feel like man this actress really got like fucked over like it just yeah. looks like god i hope she had the best day on she set. did apparently she like i had read interviews where she said <laughs> it was awesome. like her favorite thing because she ended up kind of effectively retiring after this she married someone who's got money someone in the industry with who's famous and yeah and had she's, a, like, she three kids. she's fully not she's fully off yeah. off the board took yeah. herself and off the board i think she only did this as a favor because elliot page uh had actually been cast originally um, oh in in this film and you can see a kind of like physical similarity yeah and like how Elliot Page used to look and at that mm -hmm. time and then like Alison Lohman at that time uh Alison Lohman was like quite a bit older I think than what we thought she was you know she played much younger for a very long time mm -hmm. um but yeah she effectively retired after this. she was like 47 when she made this film right <laughs> I, which oh is wild God. i mean a fully an orphan situation yeah i will yeah. i i will just for the record say that allison loman is currently 41 so when she made this she was 30 <laughs> Oh, and, sorry. Wikipedia had her on. Yeah. Um. And just for everybody's uh, factual reference, but yeah, she's like what she's playing like a twelve-year-old in White Oleander when she's definitely in her late twenties. Like exactly. Said, she was, yeah. And then she so was suspended like, in time. Yeah. But I, she, it, it look. I'm so glad to hear that that was her feedback on having done it because when you watch it, it looks like that is the case. Like when she's laying on the ground at one point and Mrs. Ganesh is over the top of her spewing worms and bugs and shit onto her face at one point mrs ganish is like the dead body of mrs ganish has tumbled over the top of her because chris has gone to a romani funeral <sighs> to try and get forgiveness of mrs ganish mm -hmm. but she has died so she ends up at a wake and then she ends up in a bit of like slapstick knocking the body off its platform it falls on top of her and it's like gumming Chris's face while spewing like green yes. embalming fluid into her mouth oh. and she just keeps screaming get her off me get her off me and like that is not that's maybe the third moment already in that movie that something gross has poured onto the face and body of Allison Lohman and it looks to me like I watch this and I'm like if I could be in one movie as an actress I would want to be in this movie having yes. all of this crazy shit happening to me and i feel so it's like safe the double dare of horror movies <laughs> yeah i want to pick that giant it nose is. <laughs> yes. it is it's like the double dare of horror movies i appreciate that and i just love how reference. i love how much i can like there is great suspense there are there's great execution of scares in this but there's a lot of goofiness and there's a lot of silliness and watching it it just feels like it it was probably a joyful experience for the people who got to be making it and that just always warms my heart um, as as a as a woman fan of things to feel like people were recognized as full human beings and not like exploited while they were making something. Can I say something about like how I think the lighting plays into the tone and how some oh, people yeah. might not have gotten yes. it? Totally. I, I feel like this is a movie where you're watching it and you're like, this is 
you know, predominantly like a daylight horror, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. and we're not talking, we're not talking about just like kind of like moody daylight. We're talking yeah. about like natural, like mm-hmm. pretty daylight. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that that's like something Yeah, not like Ari really Midsommar daylight where it's yeah. like you're on an irradiated landscape kind of Yeah, thing. this is this is like really natural, pretty daylight. Um, uh, uh, Chris's house is really naturally lit and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, when the shadows kind of come in and attack her, it becomes like a, uh, obviously a different mood. But it is predominantly natural mm-hmm. and so i think that that's a really funny thing um in, in terms of like tone and like maybe a kind of difficulty of some people not getting it immediately is the fact that like they're telling you that this is like realism they're like mm-hmm. hey here's a realism movie and then all right. of a sudden there's a gypsy curse with like, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it's just those two those two things have some friction which of course we appreciate later on but maybe we might not have um gotten as as um well when we first watch it and like how brilliant it is um which uh yeah i was just trying to look up the box office for this and i think it got like triple its budget back and it's very critic very well critically reviewed it's i think like the cumulative rating is like something over 90 percent on rotten tomatoes like yeah but it's also like i mean i remember people being like it's okay yeah, no, I remember yeah. like, you know? people I knew, pe- like people like the, the just among peer groups, anybody I knew who saw it was like, oh, that was kind of like, what the hell is that sort of thing? Yeah, and can, yeah, Sam. I really want to share just like a perspective like uh, that nobody needs because it is just really honestly a male perspective. Um, <laughs> but it's it's because I, I just wanted to, for anybody listening who didn't get it then, because I didn't get it then. And this is probably obvious for you two. Um, and so it's like, there's no point in me even bringing it up, no, but watching it now is just like, I could not believe that the villain of this movie was patriarchy. Your gaslighting boyfriend who Alice keeps patronizing to her. It's actually, yeah. it, it's all because she has to make a decision that is forced upon her in a society that doesn't allow for her to succeed in the way that the men around her are succeeding. So she has to do something difficult in the beginning that like, I, I have been, I mean, this is just, I have pitched a, okay. So there have been situations where. I was pitching on a film where it was down between me and one other director. Mm. There was a director who did not would not change the problematic material. And then there was me and my 20-page outline of how to change the problematic material. And it really was a situation like, yeah, d- pitch whatever you want. But it's that moment when the boss says to her, It's a tough decision. Your call. The decision is not up to her. Yeah. Because what's going to happen is, The boss is going to be the boss. The men that are making the decisions are going to make the decision. And it's up to her whether or not she wants to be employed. Mm -hmm. And so that is fucked up. And none of this, and watching it back, like, yes, she made a shitty decision and she stuck with a lie. But it's not her fucking fault because she was set up to fail from the beginning by the men around her. Well, and as as the as the bank manager tells her, you know, it's down to the the assistant manager position is down to her and Stu. (laughs) The new guy. (laughs) Mr. Jacks. I was wondering if you'd made any decision regarding the assistant manager's position. Oh, well, I'm still deciding. And right now it's between Stu and yourself. Stu Rubin, the new guy? Well, I know he's new, but he's also quite aggressive. And we like that. And that's what tips Chris off to know that she has to become somebody that she's not in order to get ahead. Or, like you said, the choice is do you want a job or not? Yep. And it's, you know, and she's... Sure, I can tell the truth. Yeah. (laughs) Or do the right thing. But do I want to do, do I want to work? And I also and I think also this plays into your point, Sam. When we first meet Chris, she's in the car on the way to work and she's playing addiction tape in her car. 
Good sounds abound when the mouth is round. Good sounds abound when the mouth is round. 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 So she drops her flat, I don't know, maybe like Midwest accent, maybe something oh like in Ohio. Yeah. Like she, you know, they keep referencing how she like grew up on the farm and she brings the harvest cake to her boyfriend's like parents' Beverly Hills house and they make yeah. fun of her basic like mom his mom's being a total bitch about it. And she's like, Oh yeah, you make it at harvest because that's when the yolk of the goose eggs is at its like greatest density and it makes a really like good cake. And the mom's just like reading her and it's like fuck you, bitch. She's resourceful and she knows how to like work in a kitchen and on a farm. Yeah. But, I like, forgot about the diction tapes though. That that's uh Yeah, yeah. good. So she begins the movie opening her vowels up to make them sound more round when you can hear her flattening them. And she's trying to get rid of that part about her because she knows she gets judged for it. She's trying to shed her like, you know, you were a fat girl growing up, weren't you? She gets called out by Mrs. Ganish's daughter or granddaughter. She gets picked on for all the things that she started as being and is actively trying to not be them the entire movie and that effectively is what ends up imperiling her is her trying to be something that she's not to fit into these boxes around her that other people are trying to shove her into yeah it's a passing film (laughs) there it is sam you said drag what you said drag sam (laughs) and that is the walmart of it (laughs) 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 told you we tie it together yeah I think I, I think what you know what you were saying, April, about like you know the sort of the toughness with fun. Um, yeah. I I I love the output of I love the output of this A twenty four. They do a very cool thing with the kinds of movies that they make. But it become it's it, it's sort of like in its pervasiveness has sort of become a situation of like, well, how do we make what A twenty four is doing? And as a result of that, there has become this long tail of, around the studio where. Bless them for doing what they do, but it's become a model that it seems like a lot of people feel like, like, okay, I need to do that to get traction, or that's what's successful, or so we need to replicate it. And their premium isn't necessarily on whimsy. Their premium is not necessarily on fun, and it does not need to be. They have their own artistic identity as a shop. But when you consider that the sort of, like, baseline upon which to, like, replicate your model... It's like okay, now we have a lot of that, and we, we we don't we don't have as much of a balanced diet yeah. in horror as as I would like to see because there's sort of the, the there is in another bifurcation there's sort of the Blumhouse model of things and the A twenty four model of things and those are the things that everybody wants to replicate because they're the proven methods of success and it's like well like what about like let's get the rainy shit in there let's let's finally get that long promised sequel to All Cheerleaders Die by Lucky McKee and do some weird and crazy shit. In the 2020s. Like, I want to see a return to the joyfulness and the silliness. Well, and I also think that what you're talking about, too, is a kind of lack of style. I think that there's quite a bit of style when you come Mm. to the A24 model. And I appreciate that they've... um, They've allowed style to kind of mm-hmm. lead first. Yes. And, you know, uh, I'm glad that they've gotten some good hits out of that because, mm-hmm. you know, like I really fucking love Midsommar. Yeah. But it's, it's also very stylish. And mm-hmm. um, and then when you look at Blumhouse and there's kind of like no style. Um, <laughs> they, have a house, they have a house style that sort of Wait, like. Well, they have a house are... burning at the end of every movie style. Yeah. <laughs> believe me, I know that. Uh <laughs> I would like, I would just like, you know, it, it becomes the, 
Sam Raimi was able to do this because he's Sam Raimi and he has Ghost House and 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 he's 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 proven over decades he's Sam Raimi and like you said this came after Spider Man like yeah. if he didn't have a kind of like freedom to be himself before I feel like that at least allows for like a sort of carte blanche period afterwards to be like you know I'm gonna finally make Drag Me to Hell I haven't been able to get this shit out of my head like I'm gonna finally commit to this right now yeah that's exactly yeah yeah like like, like Diablo Cody writing Jennifer's body after Juno being like well I've got all these chips and this is the thing I've always wanted mm-hmm. to do I'm gonna shove yeah. right in the middle of the table and that that is it's a thing that I really appreciate that that A24 allowed for Ari Aster to do with Midsommar they were like oh Hereditary was a hit here's so much rope that we're gonna give you to go off and make Midsommar and yeah. Jordan Peele had a hit with uh, with Get Out, and he was like, you know what? I, I prefer Get Out to Us, but I respect so much that he was like, I'm going to go bigger, higher concept, more ambitious with Us because yeah, I got even a if it chance. doesn't all gonna... work, you yeah. know, it doesn't matter. It's just like, I'm... hey, man, you did it. Yeah, I'm not going to retreat. I'm going to put this safety. anvil and I'm going to tie it up. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to retreat into <laughs> safety. I'm going to go bigger. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we talked a lot about the things that are ahead of its time. Can we talk about the word gypsy? <laughs> just real quick. Just an aside, I was obsessed with Thinner growing up. I, when I was 13, or when I was like 16, I think I picked up a book on, quote, gypsy magic. My God, what did I do? Which white person wrote that for uh-huh. me? Anyways, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, but what, what I was obsessed with was a culture of outsiders. And obviously, as we have grown to realize that the word gypsy is not a good, not, not the right word. Right. Um, the, Ro- uh, the Romani people. The Romani The Romani peoples. people. Yeah. Uh, but when we look at a cinematic history of the gypsy, at least even recently, when we think about something like Thinner, which, by the way, April, as soon as I watched Drag Me to Hell, I found Thinner and watched it right after because I'm like, okay, well, let's look at these, how big this step is. Because Thinner is like a gypsy curse film uh, movie from 1986 that actually follows some of the same beats, right? Like he gets cursed and he has to get rid of the curse by ultimately finds out he has to give it to somebody else yeah um which is you know a trope yeah. uh that we've seen before but the difference is like this movie handles it like they, like like the the female gypsy in the film is her name is mrs roma or miss romani oh. <laughs> so miss, not only did they not even call them. them they didn't even call them the right name but they were like but you know what let's do a nod to what we could be calling her by giving it to her as a last name <laughs> and then all of the different people had different like one was latino one was russian i think they didn't give a fuck but at least in Drag Me to Hell, something I thought was really interesting was how cohesive the representation of them as a culture was, especially in the funeral scene. And what yes. we see, especially when you point out Alison Lomond's character, when you point out her as an outsider trying to pass, but then you look at her approaching this other group of outsiders who have found family, togetherness, mm-hmm. they're protecting each other, they're being there for each other, and there is a warmth to that funeral that doesn't feel alarming it feels aggressive because we don't expect it Mm -hmm. but it's not evil it is a warmth yeah Mm -hmm. and so i think it what it is is what we really see ultimately what what drag me to hell does so well is it it pits two people against one another who both have it rough they are both doing what they can Mm -hmm. um in in a society that will not accept them for who they are yeah both out of desperation those their uh, their choices are all out of desperation yeah and I think a, I think a thing that I think a thing that it actually accomplishes too in having this like I'm glad the role went to Allison Lohman instead of Elliot Page because they're they're such a palatable blonde pretty like American Midwest you know little vanilla cupcake blonde girl sensibility about Allison Lohman aesthetically mm-hmm. that makes all the it makes all the crazy things happening to her feel like even more exaggerated because they're just happening to this little wisp of a of a blonde woman but also because it makes her the outsider in 
pretty much every single situation that she's in. The bank. You even kind of, like, you get the sense that she's in a loving relationship with her boyfriend, but she also kind of feels like an outsider in that dynamic, too. She's an outsider in his home when she goes to see him. And then when it has its two examples of cultures that are not just, like, standard white bread American, when you go into the Romani household during the wake and when you end up in the climax scene at the the woman's home in Pasadena where she is going to try and exercise um exercise the demon and expel it before it can claim her soul you she ends up in both of these situations where she is the minority and she is the outsider and it does not it doesn't otherize those different cultures that it puts her into by making her the normal it makes her the odd one out so when yeah. she ends up like there are there are people around her speaking languages that she doesn't understand and we're not given subtitles we're not meant to, it is not meant to make us it is not meant to make what we are seeing more understandable for us as perhaps the english speaking american viewer it is just sort of putting you in these situations where these lives are happening and you have to either adjust to the reality of the situation and take it on faith and accept it for what it is or like to your own fault be divested from the story because like it makes her constantly the sort of invader to these situations where she's not really supposed to be instead of making them these which is i think something we did a lot of was putting the white american hero heroine in a setting and making the other a grotesque yeah making the other this like sick thing that was to be paraded around in front of the protagonist whereas it makes her it doesn't make her like evil but it is like hey guess what? You're in the middle of something that you don't understand and you don't have to understand, but like you have to adapt to it and you kind of put yourself in this position of precarity by your choices of not understanding what you were dealing with. Now you have to face the repercussions of that. Yeah, but if we were seeing the story through her boyfriend's eyes, it would be very different. It would be actually more like a typical horror film, I think, because I think he's that's the one a really who's, good yes. point. Yeah. These other communities that Chris is now um, becoming aware of are the ones with the cultural wisdom and tradition and history and knowledge to guard against this terrible thing happening this presence of the lamia and she has to walk into their world and sort of seed any sort of position that she would have to these these other communities these these non-white communities in order to save her in order to protect her because she in just her basic vanilla american whiteness doesn't actually have those tools to save herself she is the she is the submissive figure she is the one who is like recognized as as sort of the weak link in the chain the simplest way would be a blood offering a small creature could be sacrificed uh, a chicken perhaps no way look i'm a vegetarian i volunteer at the, at the puppy shelter for christ's sake i don't go around killing animals you will be surprised what you'll be willing to do when the lamia comes for you i when you were saying that jordan all i could think about was um and of course because we're all thinking about what's happening politically right now but i think that there's a perspective with white people who don't want to change like trumpers who are like well uh, what about me? What about my privilege? What mm-hmm. about the work I did? And what I think about is the scene where Allison Lohman has to um, pawn all of her belongings to, mm-hmm. to, to, to live. And how many times has anybody who has been in a position of financial ruin where we've had to just sell whatever we have? And I, I know that feeling mm-hmm. and it's very real. So that spoke to me. Like watching that was like, wow. But I think that it, it also 
but she is not written without privilege. She mm-hmm. still does have privilege and still is able to exercise white privilege to a certain extent while still having a spectrum of problems that come from classism, mm-hmm. which being differentiated from racism, right? Because her race does allow her to some movability, but also she still suffers from classism. And why I bring that up is because that is the piece of the, the Trump conversation that I think is missing a lot, which is folks who were like, but what about me? And we're like, well, you're, you're a racist <laughs> because they are, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but there's still the what about me feeling comes from what I think was so expertly illustrated here, which is it doesn't eliminate all of your problems. Um, and there's, there's an empathy there. And I don't know, there's not really a point to make there other than it was the first time I've ever felt like, oh, I guess I see how that could be troubling. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I, and I, I, I like that, like, it, again, it's in the, the climax with the, um, with the, the, I think I, I don't remember the origin of the, the woman who faces down. Is she, is she Mexican? She is. Yeah. Right. I think she's yeah. Mexican. Yeah. yeah. She, the, the, the Mexican woman who is meant to like face down against the Lamia after, you know, having, having sparred with it decades ago. And then when she goes to the fortune tellers, um, when she goes to the fortune tellers, like office, like his, his place of business. And when she goes to the Romani, when she goes to the Romani wake, each of those situations, she is put at a disadvantage for her ignorance around her ignorance of the situation around her. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make, it doesn't reduce the it doesn't reduce the cultures that she's walked into as being the footnote or being like a gag or play for effect it emphasizes her lack of awareness of what's going on here is what's going to harm her ultimately because she is she is detached from too many things to sort of have the survival skills to get her through this that other people are perhaps more equipped to to address this problem and Alison Lohman plays that really well she plays that blonde blue-eyed naivete really well which is also what makes it especially satisfying when you get those great moments where rainy has her like have outbursts where that like kind of like that look like let me speak to the manager white girl rage comes through like, yeah when she has the fight with yes. mrs ganish in her car and she gets her out of the car and she locks her out and she's like i beat you you bitch yes just comes screaming <laughs> out of nowhere and then when she resolves to you know, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna re-gift this button that Mrs. Ganish cursed, and I'm gonna give it back to her and make it her property to purge the curse from my soul. She digs up her fucking body, and she That's does such like, a great. Oh. It's such an incredible. Again, the things that Allison physically gets put through in this movie is just incredible. She's in a muddy pit and it's pouring down on her. She's trying to like open Mrs. Ganish's hand to get the button to stick in it when she realizes that's not gonna work. She uses a shovel to pry open the jaws of Mrs. Ganish's corpse, shoves the button inside and like kicks her mouth shut. She's basically like, fuck you, I win. Mm-hmm. And the moments of just like piercing rage that come through with this person who's clearly internally diffusing so much frustration and insecurity at all times that when it gets to come roaring out, it's a great little glimpse at like the interior life of this character who spends most of the time just being visibly overwhelmed and trying to be a good person. You know, there's there's something also that you're hitting on too and you're talking about her character and this kind of rage and and all of the kind of things that she's going through whether it's like the decisions that she has to make to be uh to get ahead 
Sam Raimi is just such an American filmmaker. There's mm. like a certain kind of thing that he's really good at. And that's like hitting on um, different cross sections of America. And you see that in Ash v. Evil Dead, too, in terms mm-hmm. of like him as an executive producer on that show. And like, you know, there's or Army of Darkness. There's people who work in like um, in retail. And mm-hmm. like their their lives are just like very small. And if you look at like even the quick and the dead or or other things, like it's it's a very kind of like high noon aesthetic of like a mm. small person doing extraordinary things. Yeah. Um. Like like wow. that's so much of of what he's interested in. And mm-hmm. um, and I just I you know I've always appreciated that. Obviously, like I grew up on Raimi because I'm a Michigander and he's been our hometown boy. (laughs) Like we, you know, like when you were a kid in Michigan in that period of time, like didn't matter how old you were, you were watching evil dead. Yeah. Because he's our hometown guy. He's from Michigan. Yeah. You were respecting your roots. Yeah, exactly. And so we were just like, these guys all went to Michigan state. Like, Oh, it was like such a, it was such a, like a a hometown type of thing. Uh And so, um, and that, I mean, he brings that, charm to like what he does like yeah that, you see i mean you even charm. see in dark man there's there's like there's little accents of like can. real america and real <laughs> real americana that work their way into everything he's doing yes well, and the Amer- and the idea of the american dream right because yeah. like yeah. when you're talking about america in in drag me to hell that's all i could think of right because i'm like okay mm-hmm. well what about and i think that that wave that puts a finger on what i did not really make a point out of which which is that's what they're what she's trying to achieve that's what she's doing mm-hmm. when she's listening to the tapes she is that's what she's doing like if, if she does the hard work she will get what she is promised and, and she has the example is... of it in her boyfriend yes. it, yeah. who has yes. who you know goes to pay for something for her and brandishes his platinum card which there is, it is is noted by which is noted by somebody in the movie she she has a foot fo- we see a photo of hers like a young girl on the farm um, you know, a, a little, you know, soft little child yeah. and, you know, getting called, you know, as you were a fat kid, weren't you? And so she, we see the exact examples of what she's coming from. And when we, they go to the dinner at his parents, like luxury, you know, probably Bel Air, Beverly Hills home, we see the example of where she wants to go. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's yeah. easy to even think of it in a bigger way as just these are ideas that have always existed. But when we look at 2009, again, just to zero in, but like that's the year that um, Kanye West interrupted uh, Taylor Swift's award oh my God. and said, you know, <laughs> Beyonce's Single Ladies is one of the best videos of all time. And I really, mean, and, like, and when we, to, we, we couldn't have known at the time that it would change a decade of pop culture in its wake. It did. It absolutely did. But thinking about whether or not that's right or wrong because of course you don't interrupt somebody's i mean there are a lot of there are, there's a lot of discussion about that but what we yeah. can say is it does come from a very real feeling of being ignored mm-hmm. and and a very and a history of of ignoring mm-hmm. um talented black artists who who deserve to be acknowledged for that and that's a piece of the american dream that i feel like as, as in that moment we just started to say okay well is this right you know what can we start to and it, not that we resolved it you know we didn't solve racism in 2009 um but but what did happen was it began to become that that began a conversation um about our industry well and i mean that you have a literal bank is what's standing in the way yes. of allison loman's her character's ascent to like the next level of class like she could oh have been working God. at anywhere but they had her working at a fucking bank a bank <laughs> it's a, i mean it's a weird thing to think about like sam raimi and where he came from because his family was like they're from Royal Oak, which is a wealthy suburb okay. of Detroit. Um, very conservative Jewish family. 
Uh, he, I think, might even still identify as a Republican now. Mm. Um, and it, it's just an interesting thing that, like, it seems like at odds sometimes with the stories that he's that he's writing and portraying. Yeah. But like, yeah, there's a literal fucking bank that is yeah. <laughs> the problem behind all of this. And I mean, right and how many Bush people? How many people and, have have not? I mean, yeah, the the financial collapse yeah. is happening in 08, in, in happening in 0809. Yeah, sitting it in a bank during the financial collapse. I mean, how many like, have not wanted prophetic. to go into a bank? How yes. many people have not wanted to go to a bank and just like open an, their nose and like sneeze bleed all over like a manager who wouldn't like give them a loan to save them and let them keep their house in the wake <laughs> of the subprime mortgage crisis? Yeah, she asks. This is my home. Where do I go? But it is in the bank. No, please. This is my home. Where will I live? You list your granddaughter as a reference. Maybe you could stay with her. I would not burden her. And there are several fine assisted living facilities. For a me. nursing home? No, I would never live in one of those places. Mm-hmm. And that is a question that never gets answered in this film because that is not an answer in capitalism. Yeah. There is no answer for that. There no, is no. she just dies. Apparently dies. you go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the question is you could the answer is you can go die and I'm taking you to hell with me. Yeah. Yep. It kind and, of feels like people are getting what they deserve for participating in a system that uh that exploits and marginalizes others uh to the point of their death. Yeah. Well, it is, and it's fascinating too. This movie, in its closing note, in its closing note, like Chris thinks she's gotten it. Like the exer, the the exercising of the demon and channeling the lamia into a goat, um, didn't work. Goat got away. Uh, they purged the demon from the from the seance, but they did not get rid of it. She thinks she gives the button to Mrs. Ganish, but she doesn't. It was actually an envelope that had this coin collecting, this collector's coin that she gave to her boyfriend and got mixed up with her own stuff. That didn't work. She realized at the very last second, like, fuck, I, the, the cursed button is still mine. I did not gift it to anyone, even the dead body of Mrs. Ganish. And so, and her, this comes, this realization comes after she th- like she thinks she's made it, she just bought herself a new coat. They're about ready to take the train to go to Santa Barbara to stay at his parents' probably fucking gorgeous home that they have up there. She's ready to get on with the rest of her life. She got the call that morning. Stu got caught in the lie about like stealing some work from Chris's character. I mean, from Chris. So he's been fired. She's gonna be that assistant manager. It's coming up. It's only coming up, Chris, in the last moments of this movie, and she comes clean. To, to Clay, her almost, he's about ready to propose. He's about ready to be your fiance. And she's like, I could have given Mrs. Ganesh another extension on her loan, but I didn't. It was my decision. It was wrong with me. And he's like, oh, babe, you have such a good heart. And he kisses her on the head. And that's when she realizes. He's like, oh, by the way, I found your button. Like, I, I, our stuff got mixed up. She is, she has cleared her conscience. She thinks it's all going to be okay. She admitted to what she did and that she kind of fucked over Mrs. Ganish in pursuit of a better job when she didn't have to. And then, mm-hmm. nope, your soul is not clean, actually, just because you said sorry. And she backs away from that button like she can escape the Lamia, falls into a train platform, and gets dragged to hell. She ultimate, her, 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 her soul is not clean. She gets dragged to hell. Ultimately, the resolution is, young Miss White Lady, you fucked over that Romani woman, and now you're going to burn in hell for eternity. 
this here's the thing like I, I don't understand. Sam Raimi is not Catholic. <laughs> but, like, this is, like, the work of someone who intimately understands guilt. And, like, Catholicism. <laughs> I'm just like, did he marry a Catholic? I don't understand. I want to set that final scene when it rips open and hell pulls her under to uh, Pussycat Dolls loosen up my buttons. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god! What a missed I mean, opportunity! I'm a big fan of all the PCD singles, but that's my top PCD. There single. is a moment, that moment when he forget when he says when he says at the subway to her that, or when she admits the, what she had done wrong and that she had. Yeah, they're lied. on like a picturesque train platform and at Union Station, a beautiful monument in Los Angeles. You're such a good heart. It mirrors a moment in Promising Young Woman that I won't get too much into, other than that. We are quick to forgive one another when we uh, people in a place of privilege are are quick to forgive somebody else for something that it's not their place to forgive them. Yeah. (laughs) Like when he says, oh, you have such a good heart. It's like, yeah, well, it's a little late for that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Absolution. Absolution isn't really his to grant. Exactly. And and ultimately the Romani woman died uh, homeless. Yeah. So, which is why it is a fitting ending. And I think when I first saw it, what turned me off about the ending is I'm like, oh, it's it's a dark ending. I don't know if that fits. No, it absolutely fits. It's a tragedy. <laughs> Still going to make everything all right for her? You deserve everything that is coming to you. April, I am. I loved watching this again, especially so this year. Especially in this moment in time, <laughs> it's like, how does this fit so well? You know, I, I when when filmmakers talk about making like something timeless, like they always talk about it follows. It's like we gotta make we gotta set something in like a, like I don't know. Also, some time. Set, also like, Michigan, so, I'm pretty sure. Also Michigan hometown. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one of the few that's actually shot there too. Yeah, that's probably actually the key. Then we just need to shoot our timeless films in Michigan. Um, but but Sam Raimi, without you know, short of putting a a, a Kindle reader on a, on a seashell, was <laughs> yeah. able to do something that really does feel timeless mm-hmm. you know i mean I, I i it is so applicable today and and what's interesting is we're not doing handstands to discover the material it's literally exactly what it said it was going to be yeah it's just it's a it's a perfect artifact and and it's like the the thing i wish that we could get back to it's an easy commitment to the Ots hall of fame it is an easy commitment to the criterion collection of the 2000s like that that this is the first ballot this is the first ballot hall of famer this is the first ballot hall of famer wow. like Wow. All this, all this had, all the, all you need, to, all we needed to do was bring it up, and the, the, the work had already been done. I want a Peter Jackson cut. Give me three hours of Drag Me to Hell. Send me to Middle Earth. <laughs> you know, everybody should watch this movie. It's available on Peacock TV. And oh, I didn't Peacock, know that. Peacock streaming is uh, available for the desirable price of free, and all you need to do is just like log in. So watch, and that's where you can also watch The Hitcher 2007 is on Peacock TV. Oh, I still have never seen that. I'll do a whole second episode of the History <laughs> 2000 second just to have you back and talk. I would love to talk that movie with you. I think that takes us to our sign-off point. Uh, April, is there uh, anything like Switchblade Sisters you would like to direct people to? Yeah, if you want to listen to my podcast, Switchblade Sisters, we're on the Maximum Fun Network, and we come out every Thursday with a new episode of a woman filmmaker talking about their favorite genre film. 
um, breaking it down in terms of craft and process. And um, yeah, you can always watch uh, the film I co-wrote, Black Christmas, directed by Sophia Tikal, which Ooh. is on HBO Max right now. I was going to say, that's HBO streaming now. Yeah. Somebody um, responded to me on Twitter recently, and I forget what the setup for it was, but they were like, is Black Christmas the only movie that has had three good remakes? That has had like three, like, is so many remakes that have all been good? I was like... They're just they're all like very different i yeah when i was doing interviews for i still think that black christmas is a type of franchise that should get remade in the same way that invasion of the body snatchers does like let someone take it over and do something different like for me i would set it a community college kind of thing where it's just like i would like to see some people who are in the lower class version of this you know um just like a small commuter school like boise state where Mm -hmm. i went to school (laughs) um and sam how about you uh, you can find me at Sam Wyman on, I almost said on Ginger Snaps. That's not an app. On Instagram. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's it. Uh, mm-hmm. Watch The Quiet Room. It's on Shutter, Or on <laughs> Crypt TV for free with commercials and cut into a format I didn't approve of. So. There you go. Yeah. You can, you, multiple options. Find the director, find the director sanctioned one. Um, <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Jorker, J-O-R-C-R-U. Uh, Patreon.com slash Carusciola, where you can pay me for, you know, making things like this. And then, you know, another another little podcast, Disaster Girls, where you can just hear me keep talking. So thank you, everybody. And we thank you, April, for joining us Thank today. you so much and for having me on. Yes, we will see you on the other side of the 2000s.